Well, you can turn to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the Word of God. That's our next subject in this summer of essential theology. We're going to talk about Scripture this morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Blake. I think Zach mentioned it earlier. I'm typically over at Southwood, but it's great to be back here at Anderson. It's been a little while since I've been able to be with you. Well, this morning, as we talk about the Bible, I'm going to begin with an assumption. This whole sermon is built on the assumption that you wish you spent more time in the Bible than you actually do. Now, it's a pretty safe assumption. 2013, Barna Poll found that around two-thirds of Americans wish they spent more time reading the Bible than they actually do. The third who didn't wish that, well over half of them don't believe the Bible is God's word, so they don't really care. So it's actually a very small sliver of Americans who have a, a high view of the Bible and who read it as often as they know they should. If that's you, then you are awesome. We look up to you. This sermon will just be the icing on your cake. You're good. So I'm not talking to you this morning. I'm talking to all those like me who struggle to find the time to give to God's word that we know we should. We have a high view of it, like most Americans. We see it as God's word, and yet we're not spending as much time reading and studying it and memorizing it because we're so busy. There's just so much other stuff to do. We have jobs and we have school and we have to take care of kids and we have to call our parents and we have to keep up our house and pay the bills and get exercise. We're so busy running around from one thing to another that we just can't find the time to spend in God's word. I want to give you a little proverbial truth that I have learned in life. You will always find the time to do what you value most. Always true. You'll always find the time to do what you value most. That was proven to me the first year of my marriage. I was still in seminary. It's taken a lot of classes, had a lot of books to read, and a lot of papers to write. And there were nights when all I could do was write as fast as I possibly could. I could not do the dishes. I could not call my parents. I could not watch TV. All I could do was write. But if Julie was to come up to me in that moment that I'm working and she would have said, hey, hubby, do you want to have some fun tonight if you know what I mean? What am I going to do? Well, of course, I'll just take a C on that paper because you'll always find time to do what you value most. So why is it that we're not reading our Bibles? Well, it's not that we don't have the time. It's that we don't value spending time in our Bibles as much as we value spending time doing whatever we happen to be doing at that moment. We're never actually too busy to read the Word of God. Why didn't I spend time in the Word of God yesterday? Well, It wasn't that I was too busy because somehow I found time to update my Facebook status and I found time to watch that hilarious YouTube video that my friend shared with me and I found time to watch TV. I I found time for things that in that moment I valued more. That's what it ultimately comes down to. We're not spending the time that we know we should in the word of God because we don't value it as highly as we value whatever it is that we are giving our time to. And so that leads to a very simple equation. If we're going to spend more time in God's word, then we must grow our desire for God's word. 
That's how it works. You must desire it more. You must value it more if you're going to spend more time in it. And so my goal for the first part of this message this morning is to remind you why the word of God is so valuable. I want to convince you that your Bible is the most valuable possession you own or will ever own. It's more valuable than your house, than your car, than your retirement savings, more valuable than anything else. And it is therefore the very best use of your limited time. So I'm going to give you four reasons why your Bible is so valuable to you. So let's jump into this. The first reason why your Bible is the most valuable thing you own and why it's worth your time is because the Bible is absolutely true. And if you think about it, there's really not much in this life that is absolutely true. Even things that claim to be absolutely true. Every news outlet claims to be your source of absolute truth, unfiltered, unbiased truth, and none of them are. Why? Well, because they're all run by humans. And humans are easily deceived, and humans manipulate, and humans deceive other people. And even if humans are trying to tell the truth, still we twist it to meet our own agendas. That's what we do. Even out of the best intentions, even when we don't know that we're telling or spinning the truth or doing something with the truth, we still end up not providing absolute truth. I think about that particularly in the realm of medicine. If there's doctors in the house, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say. I hope it doesn't make you feel bad, but doctors, what do they do? Well, they study all of the current research that's available to give good advice to their patients. And then they give that good advice and then a decade passes and new research comes and guess what? That wasn't the best advice. They weren't trying to deceive you. They just didn't know any better. Why? Because they're human. And as humans, we make mistakes. We do not understand all things. We do not have all information. And so if you're trying to find absolute truth from human beings, even really good intentioned human beings, you're always going to be disappointed. If you want to find absolute truth, you got to go beyond the human race. You got to look to someone who is greater than humanity, someone who is never deceived, someone who is never confused, who is never manipulated, who never makes mistakes. You need to listen to someone who is greater than us. And that's what the Bible provides you. The Bible is speech from someone who is greater than the human race. Look at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Look with me at just the beginning of verse 16. Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God. Let's pause there. Inspired by God. In the original language, it's, it's saying actually God breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God himself. Now, yes, it was men like Moses or Luke or Paul who actually wrote the books in your Bible. But what this verse is telling you is that God in his spirit, in his power, in his sovereignty, he watched over that process so that every word those men actually wrote on the page is the word God wanted to be there. Theologians call that verbal inspiration. The Bible is the inspired word of God down to the actual words on the page. And the result of verbal inspiration is what we find in Psalm 119. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. God's word, because it is his own speech, it is absolutely true. The Bible is as true as God is true because it is God's own speech. So theologians use the fancy word inerrancy to describe that. 
The Bible is inerrant. That means there's no errors in it. There's no mistakes. Regardless of what type of thing you're talking about, whether it's what the Bible says about theology or about God or about morality or about history or about science, all of it is absolutely without error. It's as true as God is true. And so the Bible is the one thing you can turn to that's absolutely true. And not only is it true, but the Bible is remarkably free of spin. Here we are in the midst of another election cycle and the airwaves are full of spin. Each candidate has the same facts in front of them, but they take those facts and spin them to their own advantage because that's what politics does, but it's not what the Bible does. The book of Mark was written, not surprisingly, by a guy named Mark, but Mark wasn't there with Jesus, and so he relied on Peter. Peter's the one who told Mark the stories about Jesus' life. So Peter got to choose what stories would be included in the book of Mark. And here's one of them, an interesting little ditty. In Mark chapter 8, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he, that is Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. That's a pretty bad day for Peter. He rebuked God. And then God rebuked him and called him Satan. Here's my question for you. If you get to choose what stories are included in your biography, would you ever choose that one? Peter could have left that out and no one would have known. And yet he included it. Why? Well, no politician would ever do that. They'd never let that story out of the closet. Peter did because that's what the Bible always does. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it gives us unflinchingly the greatest mistakes and humiliations and embarrassments of the people of God because the Bible is free of spin. It tells us the absolute truth without massaging it so that you can count on it. Bible is the one and only place you will find absolute truth in this life. That's the first reason it's worth your time. Second reason the Bible is worth your time is because it has stood the test of time. Now, we live in a next version culture. What that means is that as a people, as a culture, we are obsessed with the next version of whatever current thing we own. So whether that's electronics, a gadget, a a device, or software, or entertainment, or even fashion, we're always thinking about the next version of that thing. Everything's always changing, sometimes for the better, sometimes just for the sake of change, like this whole skinny jeans phenomenon. That was the 80s. I thought we were done with that. Then we moved on to baggy jeans, which I find much more comfortable, and now we're back. I'm not really rocking skinny jeans because I'm not up with that, but we see culture changing just for the sake of change. Skinny jeans aren't better than baggy jeans. It's just change for the sake of change because everything in this world is constantly changing. And so in the midst of that constant change, you need something you can hold on to that doesn't change. That's really the only way you're going to make it successfully through life is you've got to have an anchor that you can hold on to that will keep you in one place. It will keep you rock solid while all the world changes around you. And that's what you have in scripture. It tells us in the book of Isaiah Chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God never changes. So there will never be a version 2.0 of this book. There's never going to be an update message that pops up on your Bible from God saying, sorry, the universe has changed. It's time for you to update. No, there's never going to be a new version because it was perfect the first time. This is complete. This is God's perfect, unchanging truth. 
It's the one thing that you can cling to that will never change. And it's not just the big ideas that will never change, all the way down to the smallest details. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, letter, you have a sense of that. That was a letter in Hebrew. Stroke is like the the smallest little dash that made up a part of a letter. It would be like that little line that distinguishes in English our capital R from a capital P. And Jesus' point is not even the smallest part of the smallest letter of God's word will be annulled until all of it is fulfilled. God's word is absolutely rock solid. It will never move. It will never change. Even as society changes around us, it's the one thing that you can cling to. God's word is unchanging. It has given proven answers to all people at all times in all situations. That's one of the wonderful things about the Bible. You may not think about this, but it matters to us that something is proven. Think about it, you're going to go buy a car. You don't just walk up and buy the car. You check online to see what are the reviews for this vehicle. What has Consumer Reports found? What repair issues have come up? You want to know, is this proven to be reliable? Well, the Bible is the most proven thing in the world. It's the most proven thing in the world. Thousands of cultures, billions of people have used the Bible to get through life and proven its answers. If it had not proven to be reliable, then it would have passed away like so many other things from the ancient world. Let me ask you, how many of you today are following the code of Hammurabi? Do do any of you even know what that is? It's actually a very famous thing. Code of Hammurabi, that, that was the law of the Babylonian kings that administrated the whole world for a long period of time, and yet you don't even know it. Why? Because it was man made. So it passed away. The Bible, which was written about the same time, did not pass away because it's not man made. It's permanent, it's unchanging, it's proven. The Bible is actually the most widely distributed piece of literature in all of human history. It's been copied billions of times, it's been translated into over 2,400 languages. It has influenced countless billions of people because it is God's perfectly true, eternally unchanging word. That's the second reason that you can... Count on this book and that you should spend your time in this book. Third reason why the Bible is worth your time is it leads us to salvation. That's really the most remarkable thing about this little book. It can lead you to salvation. A lot of books can just entertain you. Some can inform you. The best books can make you wise. Only the Bible can save you. Look again at Second Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 15. From childhood you, Timothy, have known the sacred writings, that is scripture, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Bible is a remarkable book because it has in it the revelation of Jesus, that that Jesus, that's God's son, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life died in our place for our sins and then rose from the dead so that he could give us forgiveness for free. We call that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. The Bible can lead you to believe in that good news and save you, save you from your sins, save you from hell. Now, if you're here this morning and you've not gotten to that place 
yet where, where you feel like you can believe in Jesus. It just seems too hard to believe that he existed or that he died for your sins or maybe you come from another religious background. My encouragement to you, I really believe if you'll read this book, it can save you. It can lead you to the hope and joy of eternal life. You just got to spend some time reading these pages. Particularly, I'd encourage you read what John says and read what the book of Romans says and then come talk to us. If you read this book, it will lead you to eternal life. That's the third reason this book is worth your time. It can save you. Fourth and final reason this book is worth your time. It equips us for life. It's tragic to me that so many people in our culture dismiss this book as irrelevant. And it's a bunch of old stories and complicated theology. It really has nothing to say to our modern existence. That couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, this book speaks to everything that you really care about on a day-to-day basis. Do you want to know how to find freedom from shame and guilt? Yeah, everyone does. You'll find it here. Do you want to know how to have a good marriage and raise good kids? You'll find it there. Do you want to know how to relate to your government and what to do with your money? You'll find it there. Even current events, like remember when that gorilla was shot a few weeks ago. How should you think about that situation? The Bible will tell you. Genesis 1 and 2, Psalm 8, you will discover a grid of truth that will help you to think about the current events you read in the news. This book could not be more relevant to your day-to-day life. It has so much to say to you. So Paul puts it this way. If you'll look with me a little further in the passage, verses 16 and 17, he says, all scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I want you to notice in particular, he does not say equipped for some good works. He doesn't say equipped for most good work. He says equipped for every good work. Everything good that God is calling you to do in this life, you will find the answer to how to live that life in this book. Everything you need to make it through this life well is here. Now, you know, usually this book's not going to give you the details. It's not going to tell you which mutual fund to put your money in. It's not going to tell you which major to choose in college. It's not going to tell you answer three on your chemistry final. It doesn't give you the details. It gives you the principles that guide you through life. So an example would be if you're single, um, you, you might wish, I certainly did when I was single, that there was a verse that was written to Blake Jennings that told me the name of my future spouse. I would have liked that detail. The Bible doesn't do that. What it does instead is it tells me the kind of person I should marry. It tells me the character qualities that I should look for in a potential spouse and on the flip side, the character qualities that I should avoid in a future spouse. And so what the Bible is giving you is a grid. And so you meet lots of people and you happen to find, hey, there's three people that meet the grid that the Bible gives me. These are all the kinds of people that I could marry. Then just pick is what the Bible is telling you. Whichever one you like, just pick and you're fine. Because you got the principles right. That's how the Bible works. It gives you the essentials that you really need. The principles to live the life God's called you to live. The Bible equips you for every good work. It prepares you for everything that God wants you to do. It tells us in Psalm 119. If you haven't noticed, we're going a lot to Psalm 119. Because the whole chapter is really about the Bible. It tells us your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. For they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. So students, what what God's saying is you you study this book. And you'll be wiser than your professors at A&M. It's good to go to a and It's better to know this book. It'll make you wiser than anyone on that campus. 
It equips you with wisdom in life. It also equips you to battle temptation. It tells us again in Psalm 119, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The Bible is protection for us. It's like a shield that defends us against temptation. Do you recall that story when Jesus is led out into the wilderness and Satan tempts him? You remember that one? Um, Every time that Satan tempts Jesus, what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. Actually, three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, that's fascinating to me because remember, Jesus is God. And so he could have literally punched Satan in the face. That, That would have been easy for him to do. Instead, he quotes scripture to set an example for us. He shows us, he models for us. When temptation comes, this is what you do. You quote scripture because this book is a weapon that defends you against the temptations of sin. This book is everything that you need in life to live a good life, to live a life you're proud of, a life that you look back and say, I I did what God called me to do. This book will equip you to live that life. So you live a busy life. There's lots of things competing for your time. Why is it worth spending time in the Word of God? Well, because the Word of God is the only thing in your world that gives you absolute truth, that's proven, that will never change, that can save you and equip you for everything good God wants to do in your life. Your Bible is the most valuable thing you own. You may have three of them. You may have ten of them. You are a rich person. It's more valuable than any home you'll ever have, any car, any investment. It's the most valuable thing you have, and so it is the best use of your time. But what I found over the years is that people start to spend time in the Word of God. Often it raises some challenging questions, and they'll come talk to me afterwards. Well, what about this? And so I thought this morning, we have the time. Why don't I spend the remainder of our time answering the five most common questions that people will come and ask me about the Bible? Questions that are like stumbling blocks. They start to spend time in the Bible and these questions cause them to stumble. So I'm going to spend some time walking you through the five most common questions that I've heard over the years that challenge people as they start to spend time in Scripture. The first question I hear a lot is, well, Blake, we don't have the original manuscripts of the Bible, so how do we know that our Bibles are accurate? That's a really good question. It's true. We don't have any of the original manuscripts. There's no piece of parchment in a museum that I can point to and say, that's Paul's handwriting. That is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Same with the Old Testament. Nothing I can point to that's an original manuscript. But you need to realize that's true of almost all ancient literature. We don't have anything written by Homer or Aristotle or Plato or even Shakespeare. Do you know we don't have a single play or sonnet or sentence actually written by Shakespeare? All we have is copies. That's true of just about all ancient literature. So what do scholars do? Well, scholars, when they're faced with the fact that we don't have any of the original manuscripts, what they do is they collect all of the ancient manuscripts that we actually do have. And they study all of those ancient manuscripts. And this is the grid that they use. The more ancient manuscripts that we have, the more reliable our copies. The closer our ancient copies to the original manuscripts, the more reliable they are. And then the more that our copies agree with one another, the more reliable they are. So here's a chart. It's going to overwhelm you, but it is useful. I'll walk you through it. 
Here's a chart to give you a sense of how the New Testament stacks up. We're just going to talk about the New Testament for sake of time. That's the one that talks about Jesus, so you really need that one. So how does the New Testament stack up against other ancient literature? Well, on this chart, the size of the yellow circle represents the amount of ancient, the number of ancient copies that we have. And the closer the edge of the yellow circle is to the black dot in the center, that means the closer in time our copies are to the originals. So less time passed between the original writing and a copy that we can point to in a museum. Okay, so let's, let's do a little of the math. Let's look at this. Um, when we look at numbers of ancient copies, well, we have 643 ancient copies of Homer's Iliad. We have, uh, let's see, we have seven copies of Plato's writings. We have 49 copies of Aristotle's writings. We have 24,000 ancient copies of the New Testament. So much, much more. Not, not even comparable. Now let's talk about how close they were in time. Well, for Homer, 500 years passed between Homer telling his story and the first copy we can point to. That's not a whole lot of time when you look at the board. For Aristotle, it's 1,400 years. For Plato, it's 1,200 years. So between the time of Plato teaching and the first copy you can actually look at and read, 1,200 years passed. For the Bible, it's 40 to 70 years. That's all that pass between the original manuscript being written and a copy that you can put your hands on. Actually, they won't let you touch it, but you can look at in a museum. We have copies of books of the New Testament that were written, copies in museums that were written within 100 years of Jesus's lifetime. We have an entire New Testament, your New Testament, in museums right now that was written within 300 years of Jesus living on earth. So it is much closer in time to any other ancient manuscripts, any other ancient literature. Now, how well do all those copies agree with one another? Well, you compare those 24,000 ancient manuscripts and you find they agree over 99% of the time with each other about what actual words were written. So you take all 24,000 copies and you compare word, 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 99% of the words line up perfectly. Of the less than 1% where there's a disagreement, most of them are spelling differences, Because different parts of the world spelled words differently. So it's very, very small percentage of the Bible that we still wonder, what exactly did Paul write? Much less than 1%. So what does that mean for you? Well, when you pick up your Bible, you are holding by far the most reliable ancient literature you will find anywhere on the planet. Nothing else in the world compares to the reliability of your Bible. So you can count on your Bible being an accurate, reliable reflection of what the original authors wrote. Okay, so that's the question of original manuscripts. But then people begin to wonder, well, not only do I not have the original manuscript, but I'm also, I'm reading an English translation and the Bible wasn't written in English. And so which of the English translations should I use? Well, first of all, let's pause and recognize (laughs) how incredibly lucky we are to be able to ask that question. There's groups of people on earth that don't have one translation in their language. You have hundreds. So which one should you use? Well, really, any of the more modern translations. So I I look for a translation written in the last 30 years because it's based on the most current evidence that we have, textual evidence. And any of the big ones work great. NASB, ESV, NIV, NET, NRSV, all of them excellent. I actually, I encourage people have two translations or three translations that you read from frequently. I do that in my own quiet times. Why? Because sometimes you just have to read a verse in a different translation and it'll click for you. 
So it's useful to read a passage in a couple different English translations and you may better understand who knows which of those particular translations will really get through and help you to understand what God's trying to tell you. So any of those translations are great. Third question I often get, why do we have these particular 66 books and not other books? This question usually comes because somebody was walking around Barnes and Noble and they walked through the religious section of Barnes and Noble and they noticed there's a lot of books there that are designed to convince you that your Bible is incomplete. That there was some book left out of your Bible because the leaders of the early church did not like it. So that the church received scripture and then the leaders, they, they read it and it did not line up with their political agenda and so they threw it out. So the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Apocrypha, they're telling you that these should be added back in to your Bible as scripture. So what do you do with that idea? Well, here's the big idea. What you need to understand about your Bible, it was never bigger than it is now. The Bible of the ancient church was actually much smaller than your Bible is now. There were no books that they had that were thrown out at some point in church history. Their Bible was much smaller. For Jesus and the apostles, what was their Bible? Just the Old Testament. None of the New Testament was written yet. So they received the Old Testament from the Jewish people. The Jews had settled what the Old Testament was. The church received it without question. So that settled the Old Testament. But then Jesus, the apostles, they're living in this New Testament age and the apostles begin to write the New Testament. And that took time. It took a lot of time, decades for the whole New Testament to be written. And then it took even a lot more time for it to be distributed throughout the Roman Empire because they lived pre-FedEx, pre-fax machines, pre-internet. They didn't have any of that. It was expensive and time-consuming to be able to actually write anything. And so it took many decades for the letters of the New Testament to be copied sufficiently and distributed sufficiently to go throughout the church world. Now what we know is that some letters of the New Testament were received as scripture by every church immediately. And that would include the four gospels about Jesus, the book of Acts, and the letters of Paul. As soon as those books landed in a particular church, they received it as scripture equivalent to the Old Testament without dispute. So we call those the undisputed books. So in the early, early history of the church, it was the Old Testament plus the Gospels plus Acts plus Paul. That was their whole Bible. But there were other books that were a little bit more confusing. And it took the church time to decide whether this is for sure the word of God. Books like Hebrews. What's the issue with Hebrews? No author. It does not name the author. And some churches felt like, well, that's not okay. We need to know who's claiming to write this. Uh, Revelation, that one was disputed for a long time. Why? Because it's crazy. No one knows what to do with Revelation. And so the church debated these books. They're called the disputed books. And so it took longer for the churches to discuss these books. In fact, it took a few hundred years. It was not till the mid-300s that the question of the New Testament was settled. It was settled because that is when the Roman Empire embraced Christianity. And for the first time in our history, all the leaders of all the churches could gather in one place without being killed. And so finally they gathered together for the first church councils and they debated in person what exactly is our New Testament. And this guy's New Testament was a little bit smaller. This guy's New Testament was a little bit bigger, but never bigger than what you have. And so finally, that's the time when they settled upon your New Testament exactly as you have it today in the mid-300s and stamped it. It's done. So there are no missing books. The New Testament was never bigger than it is now. There was nothing left out. 
It just took the church a little while to decide on and add piece by piece all the pieces that you have. So why do you have these 66 books and not some others? Because God, in his wisdom and his sovereignty, led his people gradually over a process that took decades to settle on these particular 66 books. You're not missing anything. Okay, so that's the third question I'll often get. Fourth question that I get fairly frequently is, Blake, are we really supposed to take this book literally? And I'm usually not asked it in that way. Usually what somebody will do is come to me and say, well, Blake, um, Jonah and the fish, really? Really? (laughs) That, That really happened? Because we know, scientifically speaking, no guy can live in a fish for three days. That cannot happen. And so surely that's a legend, right? It's, it's a myth. It's a fable, right? Well, here's the problem. As soon as you begin to label one part of the Bible as myth, then where do you stop? If you find it too hard to believe that a guy lived in the belly of a fish for three days, then why do you believe a guy came back from the dead three days after being crucified? Because resurrection is a lot harder than living in a fish. What we have found over the centuries, is that as soon as you start to label some piece of the Bible to be man-made, to be legend, to be mythical, it's a slippery slope. And it's not long before you'll simply dismiss everything hard in the Bible. Not just the crazy miracles, but the, the hard theology like the Trinity and the hard moral statements like what it says about homosexuality or hell. You just dismiss all of those things that you find uncomfortable. It's a slippery slope. You lose your, your anchor As soon as you declare any of it to be myth. So what particularly do I do about Jonah and the fish? Well, I don't know of any fish in the world that a guy could live in for three days. But I do know a God who created a universe with one word. And so I believe that that God could have created one crazy big fish just for Jonah. That never existed before Jonah and never existed before or after Jonah. He could have created a mile-long fish with a 5,000 square foot air-conditioned penthouse inside of it. Because he's God. He can do anything. And what I've found is that ultimately we face a choice in life. We are either going to stand in judgment over the Bible, deciding what of it is true, or we will kneel before the Bible in submission accepting that all of it is true, even if there's a lot of it, we don't understand it. First option leaves you with a man-made religion that is empty. Second option gives you an anchor that's bigger than you and awfully confusing in places, but that you can count on to get you through the storms of life. So I don't know how God did it, but I know God's big enough to do it. Fifth and final question that I get, how on earth am I supposed to understand what I'm reading? This book is awfully hard to understand. It was written a long time ago in different languages than we speak, in very different contexts and cultures, a very different world than we live in. So what do we do when we're reading a passage of scripture and it just does not make sense to us? Well, let me give you some just basic principles. We don't have time to go into this in detail, but a few things, a few practical things you can do. First of all, pray. This is God's word and God gave you his word because he wants to reveal himself to you. He's not a God of mysteries and confusions. (laughs) He's a God of truth. He wants you to understand it. So ask him, please, God, help me to understand what you're saying to me in this passage. So every time you read the Bible, ask God for help. You need help. It's his words. So ask him to give you insight. Second, again, read it multiple times in multiple translations. Sometimes this just takes time. 
And so, like I said, in, in my own life, I, I have multiple translations that I'll open up. And, and I like to find translations that are quite different than each other. So maybe a word for word, like the NASB, and then an idea for idea, like the NIV. And then I also have NET, N-E-T, open, because it has some great notes that feed into the translation. So I'll read it multiple times in multiple translations, and, and little parts will click. I'll get it here in this translation. I'll get a different verse in this translation. And, and it will open my eyes and help me to understand So read multiple times and multiple translations. Third, get help. Turn to a commentary. Now, there's a million commentaries. I'll just give you a couple options. If you want to go buy something, the first commentary I tell people to buy is called the Bible Knowledge Commentary, written by a number of professors at DTS. There's one volume for the Old Testament, one volume for the New Testament. It's, it's very easy to understand. You don't have to know any of the original languages. It just gives you a, a meaning of each verse. Now, it's, it's interpretive. You may or may not disagree with them. Commentaries aren't inspired. But it's a really good resource for you to use. If you're kind of more into the free category of stuff, then I've given you the best website I know of, lumina.bible.org. If you go to this website and type in a passage, Matthew 3, I want to understand Matthew 3. It'll give you the, the passage, Matthew, and then it'll give you all these tabs with resources you can use, like translator's notes that help you understand what's going on in Greek or in Hebrew. It's got actually all of the commentaries written by Tom Constable, one of our professors up at DTS, incredibly generous. He spent his life writing commentaries on every book of the Bible and then rather than sell them he just gave them away so you can have any of them you just go and for Matthew 3 there's what he wrote on Matthew 3 it's awesome lots of great resources at lumina.bible.org that can help you to understand what you're reading okay so that's my third piece of advice fourth piece of advice is join a group Get with other people who are studying that passage of the Bible with you. So that's why we encourage every person in our church to be involved in a grace group, like a home church or a men's or women's Bible study, a Sunday morning adult Bible fellowship, something where you're gathering with other people and studying the word of God together. Really, we're meant to be a community studying God's word with other people, not in isolation. If you're not plugged into some kind of small group, just go to our website and hit connect. And you'll see all the small groups listed there. Or call us up at the church anytime. And we'll help you find a group where you can study the word of God with other people. Finally, fifth piece of advice for you that's always proven helpful to me is remember, ultimately it's all about Jesus. So the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The Gospels tell you about Jesus. And the rest of the New Testament looks back and tells you what Jesus has done. When you're reading the Bible, keep that in mind. Ultimately, everything in the Bible is designed to teach you about Jesus, to prepare you for him, to help you to understand better who he is and what he's done. So keep taking these passages and these books that you're reading back to Jesus. What does this help me better understand about Jesus and about who he is and what he's done in my life? If you'll keep Jesus at the center, it will help you arrive at accurate understanding of whatever you're reading in the Bible. Now, those are the five most common questions I've gotten, but there's many others, and you're welcome at any time. After the service, you can come ask me any questions. I'd love to talk to you about it. It's really fun for me to talk about these things, or you can send me an email, or you can come by the office. I would love to help you to better understand the Bible, and if there's some question or issue that's been hanging you up when you open the Bible, I'd love to help you get over that. Because the Bible really is the best place you can spend your time. You need to be in the word of God every day, if at all possible. You have the time, even if there's a voice in the back of your head saying, I don't have the time. No, you say to that voice, I've got the time to do whatever I value most. Word of God is the most valuable thing you own. So give it the time it deserves. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of revelation. 
You are a God who reveals truth to us. We praise you that you are not a God who hides in the dark, a God who allows us to grope around in blindness and ignorance. Instead, you have revealed yourself to us. You've told us what is true. You've revealed to us what is good and what is beneficial and what makes life work, and we praise you for that. We pray, Lord, that now that you've revealed yourself to us, we pray that you would work in our hearts to help us to value your revelation appropriately. We pray, God, that you would help us to love your word because your word is worthy of our love. We pray that you would help us to give it the time that it deserves. We pray that for each of us, that being in your word would become a discipline in our lives, that it would be something that we do regularly on a daily basis. I pray, God, that you would help us to cling to your word and to trust it, even when we don't understand it, and even when it seems to not line up with with our reality. I pray that you would help us to cling to it as our unchanging anchor, and that in your word we would find the peace and the joy and the equipping that we need to live the life you've called us to live. We thank you so much for giving us not just your son, but your word. We praise you for Jesus above all. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.